just listening really well. Uh, and we kind of have an internal rule that if you hear something three times from three different people in three different conversations, you know, that should pique your interest because now that's not just, you know, someone's want or desire that might actually become an, in, an industry-wide need. Uh, Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's grown several startups into seven and eight figure businesses, as well as the founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where we help startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. If you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com and uh, grab some time with us. We're always here to help. Now, today we have one of, I, I think all my episodes, I think I say one of my favorite episodes, but they're all my favorites. It's kind of like choosing between your kids. And I, I have four kids and I don't know that I can choose between any of them. But we have one of the where are they at now episode, which is really fun for me because, you know, it's, you kind of do the initial interview, you know, meet the person, hear where they're at, how they got to where they're at today. But then you never really know where things go from there. So love having people back on and kind of giving that catch up episode. So with that, we have uh, Colby Tunick and uh, Colby uh, is with uh, Refocus AI. And uh, he was, he came on about six, six, seven months ago, had a good conversation, kind of told us about his journey and he's back on to kind of give us an update as to where he's at. So with that much as a, a short introduction, as opposed to my little bit longer introductions, welcome back on the podcast, Colby. Hey, thanks for having me, Devin. So before we dive into kind of what the last six months have been, why don't you take us back to kind of where you're at six months ago, what was going on, and then we'll kind of talk about how the last six months have gone. Yeah, absolutely. So if we step in our time machine and, you know, rewind to the middle of the pandemic. Uh, well, of course, six months ago, we were still on the height of the pandemic. Uh, for us at Refocus, uh, we had just released our beta version of the product. And Refocus is a sales enablement product uh, for people-to-people sales. And we answer two key questions. The first is, when exactly is someone going to purchase a product? And the second one is, what exact product or service are they going to be interested in that given time frame? Uh, and we were just kind of really honing in on that, you know, from a product market fit standpoint. Uh, shortly after we spoke, uh, right around that time, we'd been in conversations with a couple of very, very perspective or very, very large prospective customers. And um, we were actually able to close a couple of them. Uh, so, you know, right around there, we actually uh, were able to begin those conversations that have since, you know, really helped us, you know, go down the ski hill towards our, our success. And I, it's interesting to think six months ago is, you know, right when we were starting to have those initial conversations. Uh, you know, we also brought on some new staff members uh, six months ago. Uh, we, you know, revamped the website. We started our blog about six months ago. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to look at it, it's blog.refocusai.com. Uh, and we talk about everything from industry insights to digital transformation to software procurement everything that we can potentially put out there to help our uh, readership which has since grown to 2500 weekly subscribers uh you know gain an edge on their competition and learn about the newest and greatest technology coming down the road so that's uh that, that also started about six months ago so it's kind of fun reflecting back on how busy we've been and also the fact that it's only been six months it kind of feels like it's been two or three years Oh, I think it's kind of like in dog years where, you know, it's, uh, you know, a, a year in a startup is like 10 years of an adorable or an adorable job because they always have always running to catch your breath for that that whole year. So I completely get that. So, no, that was a great kind of where or kind of where you guys were at six months ago. Now, I think it, the one of the first things that we I think we chatted a bit before the, the catching up 
um, was that you guys have now completed your first pilot and you have another five pilots in the work. Is that right? Yeah, we are. So we completed our first pilot with a national insurance brokerage. They have about 5,000 employees spread across the United States. Uh, we're now actually an international company. Our second pilot is with a Fortune 300 company. Uh, we're working with their office in Singapore. So it's just crazy to think that, you know, we're uh, we're when we talked six months ago, I thought we, we were a team of four and now we're a team of seven. But, you know, with a team of seven, we're an international company supporting multiple clients all around the world. Uh, and then we have a uh, we're working with another four or five companies right now uh, with over a billion dollars in annual reoccurring revenue. So it's really an exciting time for us. No, that is exciting. It's always fun to grow and to see, hey, you know, we had an idea. We thought it was a good idea. We put it out in the marketplace and hey, it was a great idea. You know, it's always kind of that when you initially get it launched, when you get it up and going, when you try and sell it, it's always a bit of question mark. Hey, is this, is, is people going to think this is as good as I think it is? So that's awesome that you not only rolled out, you know, had the first one that you rolled out, went through with a big company, but now you've had an opportunity to do additional pilots. And now mm-hmm. one of the other things I think that we chatted a bit is you also, as you've gone through, got it up and running, did some pilots you know, did the first pilot doing or working on getting other pilots, mm-hmm. you've also honed in on kind of what the value is to the customer. So give us a bit of an insight. How did you kind of, you know, over the last six months, kind of figure out what to hone in on, how to hone in on it? And how has that gone? Yeah, so I, in for a little bit of background, we started in September of 2019. So we're still relatively new kids on the block. And we really spent the first year growing from our initial hypothesis of where we could provide value for our clients. And, you know, we released a bunch of versions of the product in that time. Uh, we learned a lot of lessons. And ultimately, what it came down to was, one, uh, just listening really well. Uh, we kind of have an internal rule that if you hear something three times from three different people, in three different conversations, you know, that should pique your interest, because now that's not just you know, someone's want or desire that might actually become an, in, an industry-wide need. Uh, secondly, uh, you know, just really being out there, not just, you know, in terms of calling and emailing people and publishing a blog, but attending trade shows and conferences and competing in startup competitions and trying to learn uh, about the, the business, business operations, you know, take feedback from that, incorporate that back into your overall business strategy, revise uh, your pricing and personas, the customer personas every couple months. And uh, it's really just been constant iteration. If you had to sum up the last six months, last nine months, last year, it would just be constant iteration. Uh, and I think that's been kind of confusing. I know I've had conversations with people on their team and they, you know, they're kind of like, I have whiplash. Like I just, like we just spoke four weeks ago, like we were going to talk about the company this way. And now you're telling me we're going to talk about it differently. I'm like, yes, yes, we are. And here's why. Now, one question, and you started to touch on it, but I'll, I'll dive into it just a bit deeper is, you know, when you get in, there's multiple ways to get customer feedback. You can do everything from, you know, um, watching the website and, you know, doing hotspots, you know, or where they're clicking and monitoring that. You can get emails, you can get, you know, ask for reviews, you can give them a phone call and, you know, dial them up. You can do multiple things. And so, when you're doing all of that, you know, w- did you try all of that? Are you implementing all that as you found one this be- one way that's better than another to get the feedback or kind of how have you gone about honing that, knowing what to hone in on and then honing the message? Sure. So uh, we were actually able to settle 
fairly well into the, the value that the product provides. And I think that comes down to just having a great advisory board. But how you talk about it, that's really where the, the rubber meets the road. And you can have the best product that actually solves the need. But if you can articulate that in you know, nine words in you know, five seconds, you know, all of those prospective customers that might be interested are going to shut down and uh, you know, hang up the phone. So what it really came down to was, you know, and I, I hate to say, it, but there were just a lot of people uh, in the industry that were gracious enough to bear through perhaps the conversations that were less articulate or, you know, less to the point or, you know, not as fluent as they should have been. Uh, and were able to, after hearing it, almost synthesize back. They were like, you said this, but what I'm hearing is, you know, this sort of thing and be like, oh, yeah, that's that's what we mean. And then over time, actually adapt the customer language uh, as the sales proposition, as the sales language. And I think that's also been very effective is, you know, just learning how the customers themselves think about your product and articulating that back to them. It's uh, it, one, it's very rewarding to them, but two, it makes what you're doing very clear. Mm. No, and I think that, that that's a, a, certainly a, a great lesson learned. And, you know, and, you know, I think it's one thing that makes products successful. You know, it's, you always put it out in the wild and I, I don't care how good you've tested the marketplace before you put the product out, you know, there's going to be things you didn't consider. And, you know, I always kind of joke, but it's, you know, there's a lot too. So I've done several different startups and have been in the software arena and, you know, it's, it's, it's incredible. The things that you don't think of until you actually put it out there, you know, the mm -hmm. way that people do it. I always, I always joke is, you know, it's hard to make something idiot proof because they keep making better idiots in the sense that there is sure. always things that you don't consider. And I'm not calling customers idiots. Don't take that the wrong way by any means. I'm more saying that there are things that you would have never thought that people would have tried this, they've done this, they would have, or, you know, interacted with it this way. They would have tried to do everything else. And until you really try that, until you really get that understanding, you're never going to fully um, be able to iterate on the product but you can't put it out in the marketplace and then just simply say oh it's done we, we we built it it's good to go don't worry about it you know that's not a good place so i love the, hmm. the iteration now one of the other things you mentioned just kind of diving through is you made a couple hires you know it sounds like you had a couple key hires tell us a little bit about that project or process so, you know was it a smooth a fluid process you loved it and it was a perfect thing it was arduous and you know time consuming and it was you know because that's always you know you start out as a very small group with a startup you have a few key individuals a lot of times it's people you trust as people you worked with mm -hmm. before and then you reach a point to where now you have to expand out it's no longer just that key group but you're saying hey we have other needs we have other people we need to grow the team and you know i've i've gone through where i've rushed through way too quickly to make hires and they haven't been good hires and i learned my lesson and there's other ones where i took my time slowed down and we've had absolutely great hires i've been on both sides of the spectrum and i you know you let learn those lessons so how did the hiring process as you're, as you're looking for those hires how to go for you well, I think it comes down to when anyone starts a company, the first people they normally look at to start a company are people within their immediate network. Uh, and that is mostly from a security standpoint, because if you know, if you've known someone for a couple of years outside of a work setting, you pretty much can understand you know, how, how effective, like benchmark, how effective are they going to be as a coworker now? Uh, I have heard uh, a million horror stories of someone who, you know, they go and they find someone they've never met before. They they supposedly both share a common idea and, you know, they go to try to build a company together. Six months later, you know, one founder is doing all the work and the other founder is, you know, 
mowing lawns or you know doing something not related at all to what the mission mm-hmm. that the, the two or three set out to do and um i've also heard stories where that works extremely well um but it's kind of a mixed bag one of the things i have learned uh, and i think the team has learned from this journey is you just have to start and especially when you begin, you know, fresh, I have an idea, there's no product built. So if it's a, if it's a physical hardware sort of product, you know, nothing built of their software, there's nothing that anyone can click and touch on, you know, it's important to just get a team together to get something out the door. And then the thing is, the, the more mature the product is, the higher quality people you'll be able to attract. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I have, a, I have a wonderful team, uh, you know, Chief Operations Officer, uh, Operating Officer, Elijah Chang, who's been with us from the beginning. Uh, our Chief Technology Officer actually had to step down, uh, went through a major life change, and that was, that was a major shift. Uh, and in uh, their place, we were able to attract uh, a 35-year, you know, PhD machine learning expert, worked with, you know, multiple Fortune 50 companies uh, for lead and demand generation, pricing and revenue forecasting. Uh, Dr. Nassar Hundewall. And I just have to say that if we had set out in the beginning to attract someone of his caliber, we wouldn't have been able to. And one, that's because we wouldn't have been far enough along to provide, you know, someone of that level the certainty that what we're working on is actually wanted by the market. Uh, And two, we wouldn't have probably been able to articulate our value proposition in a way that would have been attractive to someone of, you know, a a later senior hire uh, would require. Uh, and so for the people that are listening in, uh, you know, it's more about just getting going, but then, and I, I say this because it, you, you know, especially if they're personal relationships, you want to, you want to be respectful of that, but you do have to be, um, I think the best word for it is just ruthless when it comes to, to hiring, right? You, you always need the best team. And sometimes the team you started with is not the team that's going to get you across the finish line. Um, mm-hmm. That can be, you know, both, a, you know, a team decision, like, hey, this person isn't working out, or it could be mutual, like, hey, you know, I, you know, this just isn't working for me. And every step of the way, as you continue to grow, and as you continue to reach, you know, key KPIs, key revenue numbers, uh, it's easier and easier to attract people of higher caliber. Now we're in the place where we are, you know, uh, you know, making early revenue, about to make early revenue, you know, uh, early recurring revenue. Uh, And so making sure that we had enough of the cap table free in order to, you know, attract those people if we can't pay them you know multiple hundreds of thousand dollars a year was also key so you know kind of two lessons there one get going but two make sure you have enough cap table available so when you get to the point where you really need to start hiring you know seasoned key industry leaders and bring them onto the team you can attract them not just with your mission but also with your uh, amount of equity you can offer them Uh, No, and I I definitely agree just as a, a quick reminder for those what a cap table is basically a cap table is in, in kind of a quick summary, it's ability to give them shares or equity, you know, and there's different ways of doing it, depending on how you have to do it, shares, equity, or other incentives such that when they come on, they may not have necessarily as high of salary, but they have that, hey, if the business does well, you'll have an ownership, or you'll have a stake in the business such that you can get that reward as it prospers. So just as a complete aside, but no, I completely agree. And one of the other things I thought was interesting. So one of my, I have a lot of books that I love, favorite books, but one of my favorite books is um, it's by Mark Randolph, which is a founder of Netflix. And the original, you know, Steve Hastings, the one that everybody knows now, but he wasn't the original founder, Mark Randolph was, and it was that will never work. And 
great book. You should definitely read it. Not plugging it. Just I just like love the book. Um, but one of the things that they kind of talked about is the reason it shifted over from Mark Randolph to Steve Hastings, and they also had to shift over from some of, or some initial employees to new employees is because as a startup, a lot of times you start with a generalist. In other words, you need people that can do a lot of things fair, fairly well, but they aren't specialized in any given area. As a business continues to grow and mature, a lot of times you shift from, hey, we need a whole bunch of or several generalists to some specialists. And those specialists can do just some areas very well and they may not do everything well but they do some things very well and so as you shift that to your point is kind of hey we need there sometimes you start out thinking we need you know these type of people and then hey now we need these experts in the industry we need other things and so it's always interesting how that evolution occurs with each startup and it, it occurs over different timelines different sizes different types you know different there are ways that it shows that but it's kind of has that, that same outcome within each business as you continue to grow so i definitely understand and, and think that makes a lot of sense well, so now we've kind of gone through and you've uh, you've done, you know, so you've talked about you doing your pilots, you've made some key hires, you're continuing to grow, um, you, you know, you've honed in your value proposition. I think one of the other things you mentioned is also getting resi- ready to do um, a venture raise as well. Is that right? Yeah, so we will soon uh, be going out and we've already started to soft circle some of that investment uh, to do our initial raise, which uh we've decided it's a pre-seed i think that's one of the difficult things right now with with startups um one is you need a you need a product and you need users you know and then what you really have to do is find a firm that you know most firms either like we accept pre-revenue companies or we don't right Uh, but as long as you have a product you know you're and you have people using it on a regular basis you're you're okay Uh, but there's a lot of confusion and ambiguity in the market right now about what the titles of the raise mean uh right <laughs> i think that there's so many different titles it's it's pre-seed versus seed versus series a series b yeah. series 8.1 i mean it just seems like and then it seems yeah. like every time people just come up with new titles to make it so it sounds new and different seed one seed two it's a bridge it's you know it's uh mm-hmm. it's just yeah, so originally we thought we were going to do a seat. Now we, we've spoken to a couple of, you know, key trusted venture capitalists who we're not interested in working with. So we can, you know, expect, and I think that's the other thing, um, you know, as a, as a founder, you're going to speak to a lot of investors. And if you can find a couple that, you know, don't actually invest in your market, but, you know, are reliable and you can trust them, they'll provide you a lot of great feedback on both your raise material and your pitch and, you know, strategy and things like that. And I think that's really key. I didn't, I didn't know that necessarily going in, like, go, go find two or three investors you can talk to that just like you as a human, and <laughs> but they don't have that conflict of interest. Mm. Um, and because of that, we've since decided to call it a pre-seed. But that was a we 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 talked about like we're going to do a friends and family and a seed and a and a pre-seed or a post-seed or it's, it was like it got so confusing. Uh, and but the funny thing is the number the dollar amount of money we were raising never changed. Mm. It's always been the same amount of money we want to raise. However, uh, it's just really the amount of expectation that investors have going into that raise. Um, you know, it, it's also there's a there's a lot of people out there with raises a lot of you know early stage vcs venture capitalists that you know they're okay writing you a hundred thousand dollar check if you want to just raise five hundred thousand dollars but it's really weird you know these days and with the amount of the, the cost to build an a functioning software product the cost to you know support customers on a functioning software product and there's actually a bit of a gap in the space between like 
you know, raising a five hundred thousand dollars and raising a million and more because the amount of traction and KPIs you have to have to raise over a million are, you know, far more significant than if you want five hundred thousand dollars. But if you look at mm -hmm. what five hundred thousand dollars gets you in terms of burn rate and key hires and product development and eventually revenue numbers, right? Everything comes back to revenue. You raise five hundred thousand mm -hmm. dollars to get the X number. Mm -hmm. It's it, it's it pales in comparison. And, and honestly, in a lot of situations, if you're not just you know two people, the core founding team, and you need to go hire some consultants, may even be insufficient. So, uh, just you know, for those listening in, I would just have you think critically about what your actual funding needs are, how you're actually going to use the money, and ultimately how long that money is going to last and what revenue that money will get you to. If you can answer those four questions, you'll be in a good shape to strategize your next raise. No, and I love that. And, you know, it's interesting. I think it's just as hard to raise a friends and family round as a series A and a series B. And it's not like, oh, now we've made it. This round is a piece of cake, you know, and some, sometimes it is, or if you get the lead investor, it can make it easier for that. But it's always, a, uh, you know, it's always a chore. And it's kind of like, you know, selling, you know, raising 500,000 is the same as raising 100,000 is as difficult as raising 10 million, depending on where the company's at. So I think that that definitely makes sense. So well, awesome. Well, so now we've kind of walked through, you know, we've done everything from you're currently in a raise and definitely encourage those that are either accredited investors or investors or other people that want to get involved, they can reach out to you. Um, but you've also refocused, you've, you've honed your message, you've honed your business. Anything else as we kind of wrap towards the end of the, the episode, anything else you've done over the last six months that would be interesting or that otherwise people should know about or think about as they're doing, running, as they're doing their business? Yeah, um, and I think this is just kind of a the, the industry software is very cyclical, but it's also very buzzword trendy heavy. Uh, so we have a lot of people we speak with uh, that don't actually understand what machine learning is, and there's a lot of companies that you know talk about machine learning uh, perhaps incorrectly. Uh, you know, there's a lot of great companies out there that are actually using some sort of machine learning, artificial intelligence uh, to drive value. And one of the struggles for us has been trying to say like, no, no, we're actually using real machine learning uh, to generate these, you know, real-time sales insights. And, you know, we have a lot of people that ask, well, like, oh, we spoke to this other company the other day and they say they're doing something similar, but then you kind of dig into it a little deeper and, you know, they're doing optimization or they're doing some sort of robotic process or automation or PA, which aren't, machine learning uh, sort of derivatives. And you know, one of the things we've had to be really cognizant about is how we talk about, you know, both uh, ourselves and our expertise and our skill set is to, to really make it known that, you know, just uh, AI and machine learning is a very specialized skill set. It's, it is difficult to do. Uh, and not everyone that talks about it, you know, is actually doing it in the market. Um, you know, that was a kind of a challenge that when we spoke six months ago, I didn't expect. And it's become really prevalent now because we're talking with, you know, such large companies that are being approached all the time by companies like ourselves, to be quite frank. And, you know, there's kind of this confusion about like, what is machine learning? How does it actually work? Uh, you know, how how is this different than, you know, uh, a monkey in a black box just like spitting out recommendations? Uh, and you know, I would, uh, I think one of the things that's very helpful, not only for investors, but for, you know, co-founders, for startups, for people that are just interested in learning about machine learning is to, you know, just pick up a book and try to understand, maybe even try to code 
some of it themselves to figure out how it works. Uh, that sort of practical hands-on knowledge, um, I think is beneficial to anyone who's interested in, in AI. But the other kind of key caveat to that is machine learning is not a silver bullet. And we've actually had to turn a lot of companies down because uh, they're not either in the place where they have the data necessary or what they want actually doesn't require machine learning. And for both those reasons, both very valid reasons, we've had to, to say to some very large uh, potential checks, you know, I'm sorry, we just can't work with you or, you know, we're actually not the right fit and we don't, we don't want to, you know, set ourselves up for, to not meet your expectations. So uh, saying no, I think ultimately saying no and, and being really strong in, in what we do well, those are kind of two lessons that we've learned over the last six months that, you know, if you would ask me six months ago, what do you think some of your struggles will be? I would have never have predicted. Mm. No, and I think that there's a, a lot of wisdom there. So now as we start to wrap up, I always like, you know, where are they, at? you know, normal episodes always have the two questions I ask at the end of each podcast and what the, where are they at now? I always like to change it up just a bit. Um, so the question I always like is, you know, as you go along your journey, you know, you, on the one sense, the farther you get in, you learn a lot, you, you know, you pivot, you adjust, you adapt and you do that. You also sometimes, I think, when you initially as a, as an entrepreneur, you have, you're a bit naive. And I think most entrepreneurs are, otherwise you'd never get started. And then you also, you don't, you know, you don't know what you don't know, so to speak. And as you get farther into your journey, you get less naive and you learn more, which is a benefit, but it also can kind of create those fears of, you know, now, you know, what you, you should be working, you know, now, you know, what mm-hmm. keeps you up at night. So with that along your journey so far, what's uh, what's your biggest fear and how have you dealt with it? Well, I don't think anyone should start a journey like having a startup if their dreams aren't bigger than their fears, because then they'll have nothing to you know keep pulling them forward or pushing them forward or working towards. Uh, but you know, the biggest fear of you know, it's a difficult question. I think it's a very valid question, and it's kind of twofold. It's it's one, you know, is something going to happen in the market in the global economy that you know, dries up all of these budgets that, you know, currently we're working with, right? Because if another 08 stock market crash or another tech bubble happens, chances are people are going to say, you know, we just, sorry, like we love what you're doing, but we don't have a budget for it. And that's really that we've never gotten that. uh, We've never had someone tell us, yeah, we don't have a budget for what you're doing. We've actually gotten really positive feedback. If you hear that, that normally means you're not solving the problem. But after a tech burst bubble, something like that, it's very possible that these budgets could drive up. And, you know, of course, that has nothing to do with us. That's kind of an external fear. Uh, As the world kind of returns to a new normal after the pandemic, too, it's just trying to make sure that, you know, that continues to happen and that there's not some sort of next wave that derails how businesses are thinking about operating in the budgets and their, you know, revenue forecasts. But uh, the, the second one is, you know, and I think this is perpetual, it's, you know, what if something happens to the team, right? I mean, and this isn't like, you know, someone just goes off the deep end or, you know, has a a, a stress attack. I, I joke with my co-founders that we actually get stress, uh, stress, stress, stress equity, stress, stress equity. <laughs> uh, and people are like, oh, yes, you know, stock equity is great. I'm like, no, no, you literally get equity for stress. Like you just, you literally just, you know, have to try to it's stressful. And so it's it's a matter of, you know, well, what happens if someone goes through a major life event or a family member gets sick or, you know, mm-hmm. some sort of, you know, life-changing event, which is, unfortunately, they do happen. And, you know, suddenly you're kind of left with a gap again. 
and we already went through this once with our when our CTO unexpectedly resigned due to that significant life change. And mm -hmm. you know, we we parted on on very good terms, and we only wish that person the best. And you know, very fond memories of the time working together. But you know, suddenly you go from having a strong team that you know you have all of your gaps filled to suddenly you have a big hole. And except last time when this happened, you didn't have Fortune 500 customers saying, "Okay, you promised me this. Where is it?" Uh, so. I guess that that for me is probably my biggest personal fear is like what happens if there's a you know the composition of the team changes and how long would it take to find someone with the skill set and experience to fill that and of course you can handle that a myriad of ways from succession planning to you know coaching to just regular check-ins and saying hey is there anything on the roadmap or your your horizon that I should be aware of but you know life does happen and it's those unexpected curveballs that ultimately keeps this interesting. Mm. No, and I think that, you know, that's, there's a lot to unpack there and we won't dive into all of it, but I think that there's a lot of validity, but I think even the things that you learn are that are out of your control, you kind of touched on that, the economy or what if things they're saying, they are a great product, we just can't afford it. Or, you know, those type of things are ones that you start to learn and say, okay, I just figured everybody buy my product. If it's a great product and I make a great thing and then, you know, you start to learn, but I think there's a lot of fears in there, but I think it's also one where a lot of times we don't, you know, you, you tend to not want to focus on the fears or even talk about it in the community because then it makes you show like, hey, everything's not absolutely perfect. I don't have everything figured out. It's not all just going exactly as perfectly as I could ever plan. And I think that, you know, you have to have the the for, or foresight to say, hey, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have fears. I'm going to have things that I'm not going to be able to control or I'm not having thought of that I'm going to have to encounter and going to have to figure out how to deal with. And so rather than just kind of pretending like they aren't there, recognizing them and then figuring out how to deal with mm -hmm. them is a great thing. So I, I love hearing a, a little bit about that. Well, as, as we wrap up, then it's been a pleasure to have you on again. Um, but if people want to, they want to be a customer, a client, they want to be an investor on your current round, they want to be an employee, they want to be your next best friend, any or all of the above, how do they reach out, connect up with you and find out more? Absolutely. Well, they can reach out to me uh, through our website, which is just refocusai.com. Uh, you can drop us a line there. Uh, you can also email me. It's colby at refocusai.com. And uh, always happy to speak to someone who's just interested in, in kind of innovation and product. Uh, you know, I don't want to say that we're a success story yet because we still have a million miles to go. But, you know, if someone is just getting started and they say, like, how do I take this idea I have? And, you know, what, what's the next step? Right? How do I take my first step on that journey? Always happy to, to help someone think through those uh, steps there as well awesome well i definitely encourage people to reach out find out more support you guys and and any or all of the above so thank you again colby for coming on it's been a fun it's been a pleasure now for all of you listeners if you have your own journey to tell whether you're telling your six-month journey where you're at or you're just starting out on your journey we'd love to hear your or love to share your journey um so feel free to go to inventiveguest.com and apply to be on the podcast two more things as a listener one make sure to click subscribe in your podcast player so you know when all of our awesome episodes come out to leave us a review so everybody else knows that or can or everybody else can find out about all of our awesome episodes last but not least if you ever need help with patents trademarks or anything else with your business feel free to reach out to us by going to uh, strategymeeting.com grabbing some time with us to chat well thanks again kobe and as always wish ne the next leg of your journey even better than the last thanks Devin. you too mm -hmm.